All right, you guys. Well, thank you for these questions. Um, happy to be able to try to do this every now and then because I know that sometimes when we preach verse by verse through a book, um, that's, I think that's the best way to have a consistent teaching ministry. But in doing that, you don't often, you know, maybe hit questions that are on your heart or on your mind. Uh, sometimes you do. I mean, if, if preaching verse by verse forces you to deal with certain topics that maybe you wouldn't deal with. If you didn't, if you had the choice to not do so, but it also limits you in sense of the range of topics. So these uh, Q and A nights are good for that. Um, do my best to try to answer them according to the scripture. You know, with the help of the other leaders as well too. If uh, if you want to ask questions based off of the question and the answer that I give to the question, that's good too. I, this could be more of a discussional type thing, okay? Because again. Really, we want to help you guys. Uh, you know, the, one of the main reasons, of course, that we gather on Wednesdays for Christ's glory's sake, but a small subset under that, and which I, lends to Christ being glorified, is the discipleship of us all. And so, you know, we want this to not just be an intellectual activity, although, you know, knowledge is not bad, knowledge is good, you have to, you need to have right knowledge. But we want it to also be applied to the heart, you know, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not getting it, if it's not clear to you, ask questions. There's no nothing wrong with asking questions. We all have to grow. We all are at different levels. Uh, we, we grow at different paces even. There's nothing wrong about asking questions. We want you to ask questions. We want to try to help you guys, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll just go at these at random. Looks like there's a lot of questions. I don't know that we'll get to all of these tonight, unless they're all just jokes. So we'll see. Father in heaven, you are perfect in all ways. You are pure knowledge even. Uh, everything that you know is right and good. There's nothing that you don't know. And we ask that you would help us to understand our lives and this world in light of the truth that you reveal. Lord, we know that there's many things that are false, many erroneous teachings and doctrines, uh, mantras, and ways of life that are popular in our culture. And we pray that you would help us to not be deceived by such things and give us understanding of your word. Help us to have you and what you say be preeminent in our lives. Let us not seek to order our lives such a way where anything would be before you. Uh, we pray that the very thoughts we think even would be guided by you, Lord, and would be, therefore, pleasing to you as well. So please, Lord, bless our time. Holy Spirit, give understanding. Help us to be discerning. Give to us wisdom, not so that we might be puffed up in these things, but that so we might grow in love for you and love for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so first question. I'll take one that's folded up really well. Uh, only if they're really good jokes. If they're just bad jokes, I know. Okay. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, would we be sinning a lot more? That's a good question. Um, so really, so when we think of the cross of Christ, what we're thinking of is like the doctrine of the atonement, primarily at least. Maybe we can think of other doctrines at the same time, but it's primarily the doctrine of atonement. And what that means is what, in other words, what Jesus has done to pay for sins, to atone for our sins, to pay the penalty that was satisfied. 
And so one of the aspects of his atonement also has to do with his perfect, righteous, and holy life, because that's a credit that's applied to us through faith, so that we're declared righteous before God. But then also his satisfying of the penalty of sin that's against us by taking that punishment upon himself. And so that we would call God the propitiation of God's wrath, meaning God's wrath is take, was taken off us. It was placed onto Christ, and there he paid the penalty for that. But obviously, um, and so from a legal standpoint, God views us as never sinning, right, from a legal standpoint. From a standpoint of, like, should I allow Paul Abeda into my heaven? Well, the answer is yes, because he's not looking at me at all for anything that I've done, good or bad. He sees just the righteousness of Christ, the atonement work of Christ, his life and his death uh, credited to me. But obviously in time, I still sin. I still actually do sin. I, I'm not a perfect man. I still do things that I know that I shouldn't, and it's stupid. Often, I, I feel like I'm just so dumb. Sometimes I'm like, man, I know I shouldn't do this. And then I still do it, or I still think it. And I, you know, I don't love that about myself. That's just, I think, part of being a, a person that has to deal with a, a nature that's fallen. We do things. We often maybe don't do the good thing that we know we should do. Like, you know, oh, I'm just going to neglect this good thing for something not as for something that is not as good. And so I still sin. The question though is would we be sinning a lot more if Jesus didn't die on the cross? And that's what kind of a hard question to answer in the specific. That's why I've been kind of skirting around it, just trying to establish other things first. Because the reality is I mean, people sinned a lot or in the same way even that we sin now before Jesus went to the cross, right? So maybe we think of it like that. Did were people sinning before Jesus went to the cross? Yes. Were people saved before Jesus went to the cross? Yes. Uh, they would. You know, they still had the same faith as us. Remember last? I think it was last week we read Romans eleven, or excuse me, Hebrew, Hebrews eleven, where it talks about them having the same faith that um, even that we have that commends us to God. And the point being is that. I, we just don't know, I guess. It's hard to deal with hypotheticals. We are, as Christians, providentially kept from sinning sometimes because of God's you know, kindness and, and grace towards us. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, like if the atonement had yet, like if we lived before the cross, what I'm trying to say, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. If we lived before the cross, we wouldn't be sinning any in a, in a greater way just because Jesus hadn't went to the cross yet. We we sin when we chase after our own desires, and people do that then. They do it now. They'll do it in the future until Christ returns as well, too. But um, there is benefits from Jesus's death on the cross that I think we can say go across the whole world. And so for an example, that would be like, you know, this country was found largely on Christian and Judeo principles. And so it could be that if we were a country that was not founded on Christian morals and, and we're, we're drifting away from it now, of course, uh, we're the, the longer our nation has been around, the more and more it seems like it's 
becoming increasingly wicked, increasingly pagan. But because we had these laws set up, society itself was probably a generally a generally speaking as a whole, looking as a whole, a lighter area. Like, I mean, there's not child sacrifice and there's abortion. It's legal now. And that is like a form of child sacrifice. But like, if you look at Christianity and the impact that it's had on America as compared to just some jungle people where they're like cannibals, in that sense, Jesus's death as it's been applied to a people group as a whole has made it so there's less thinning, if that makes sense. But there's still, I mean, just, you know, the, the people, the cannibals living in the jungle, they're just as damned as the people who live in the United States who don't have Christ as well. Does that make sense? Okay. That's a tough question. It's hypothetical, but hopefully that made sense as an answer. Move on. Okay. We might want to reference to Romans 2. You know, Romans 2 says that the Gentiles... Part of the reason why, maybe I should say this actually as a good answer to that. Um, Romans 2 talks about the, 2.15 talks about the Gentiles obeying God because the work of the law is on their heart. And that's a, that testifies against them and it testifies against the Jews who actually had the law given to them. Um, so what really prevents us from sinning is the fact that we're moral agents. The fact that God made us in his image. And so God's law, even if people don't know it, um, it is restraining people from sinning because this conscience that he has given to us, it directs us into what's right and what's not right. But often, you know, because of sin, our conscience is damaged and we then we go into sin and we, we commit more and more sins. But it's the law of God is really the thing that is attached to that. And the Reformed have always looked at it in three different ways. The first use of the law is that it's to be a schoolmaster, a tutor for us to see Christ. So in other words, it, it helps us, the, the first use of the law is to show us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. That's what Paul talks about in Galatians. And then the second use of the law is to restrain evil across the world. It does that, right? I mean, if you go to um, Haiti and you try to steal somebody's wallet there, they're just going to be like, oh, that's that's okay in America. That's illegal in America, but here it's okay. No, they're going to defend themselves. They're going to try to keep you know, their property because the law of God written on their heart tells them that you know they are supposed to have things and people can't just take them. And then the third use of the law is for Christians only, for people who are believers, and it, gives, it serves as a guide for us to know um, how we should live so that we might honor and glorify God. So really... The law of God is what is what really is restraining sin in that regard. Okay, um, if Jesus, oh, let me read it in my head first. I think I know who this is, and I'll I'll, answer, I'll read it just because um, for some history. Yeah, if Jesus is the Lamb of God, well, some so somebody in this room doesn't believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. I guess it says is if Jesus is the Lamb of God. Oh. I don't know. No. Um, behold, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yes. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, obviously. So, and Mary is his mother. Does that mean Mary had a little lamb? <laughs> wow. So, so history, history effects. That little nursery rhyme is, I think, it was based on that. I think it is a. It was a. Yeah. His fleece was white as snow. Right. 
So it's, it's the nursery rhymes kitty thing. I think maybe to introduce you to concepts. It's obviously not a theological <laughs> framework. Yeah. Don't con don't confess Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How do you get someone to accept the Bible? So you, you can't, you don't want to trick them, right? Yeah, you just ask them to read it. That's the good answer. You, you can't trick them into it. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be." equipped for every good work. So I think what I would do is if someone said, well, I don't, I don't want to read the Bible. Well, part of this is you have to understand is a heart issue. When you're a Christian, you have desires, holy, holy desires that you just wouldn't have if you weren't a Christian. You have a desire to know what God says because you want to know God. And so how do you, if you want to know what God's like, well, you have, you can't just, you know, go read Lord of the Rings. You have to read, you know, God's revelation unto you. And so the first thing is, you know, when a person really is born again, they'll just have, they have a desire to be in the Word. They want to be around God's people. They want to hear preaching. They want to be at the church when the church is open. That, that's just a, a, as, much, as much as they can. Um, and that's just a normal Christian thing. That's a desire. You can't force that upon anybody. That's what the Holy Spirit does to someone when they become saved. But, as far as accepting the Bible, um, and for somebody who's not a Christian, and then maybe they're just they're curious, or maybe they are maybe are critical, just have them read it, and you could tell them what Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen says that look, this is breathed out by God, it's inspired by God, and it's profitable for training, uh, for instruction and in righteousness, for reproof and for correction. So you tell them what it's good for, right? It's not just a collection of stories of fables and myths. It's a story. It's a it's a book that will tell them who God is and what God desires, and then just talk about it with them. You know, if they have questions, certainly they're going to have questions. It'd be weird to not have questions if you read the Bible, um, unless you're Jesus, and then you know all the answers. Correct, Henry. Yes, that is technically yeah. what this entire thing is about questions. Right, right. So, so you just you know you talk them through it. Um, I like you. You might want to choose a specific book. I always, depending on the person, I like either the Gospel of John or Matthew's Gospel as well. You maybe don't want to send them to Revelation as the first time they've never read the Bible before. Because really, in order to really understand Revelation, you really kind of have a, need to have a grasp of the Old Testament and some of the things that were promised and prophesied about to get a good grasp of Revelation. So don't send them there. But, you know, tell them, you know, what it means to you. That is, is God's book and go from there. Okay. All right. Can science disprove or ever prove God? Okay, elaborate on that. Science can't prove anything. Hundred percent prove anything. That's one of the laws of science. That's one of the laws of science. Okay. So, so science lives in the realm of theories. And it's something in science is true until it is proved untrue, right? Um, but what we need to understand is that so science things need to be for a science you have to apply the scientific method to it. So you have to be able to you know repeat it and get the same result. And that's just something you can do with God because God's not 
physical. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. And so you can't disprove God. And the reality is, though, is that, I mean, science does prove there is a God already, I think, in the sense that it, at least it improves that there's intelligent design. Now, how you get the Christian God from there, that's, that's more, it's a bigger conversation. But properly speaking, like Adam was saying, science doesn't prove anything. It realizes what is true. It discovers what is true. And to discover that God is true, ultimately, you need special revelation for that, the God of the Bible. But by natural revelation, by nature, you can at least get to an intelligent design, an intelligent designer. Ross had a good example in the Sunday evening service a few weeks ago where he said, like, just think about your, you as a human being. You have a brain and a heart. Which one of those evolved first? Are they at the same time? Like, cause you know, you need your brain to, your brain, your heart needs to pump um, blood and oxygen to your lungs and it has to get, the air has to get up to your brain and your brain tells you what, how to do something. Like, which one came first? Like they have, like we're so complex. Just looking at people ourselves, it would be, uh, you know, impossible to have anything other than intelligent design. But good, good job, Adam. Adam. This is a long one. Okay. Why is it so hard to comprehend the fact that God existed before time? Can you read that one more time? Why is it so hard to comprehend? The fact that God existed before time. Um, it's just because we are made in time. We are, God is eternal. We are, we have a beginning. God doesn't have a beginning. It's just the part of the reason I think for me is because it's just impossible to talk about because we have to talk about things with words that describe time. Even, even the language to describe time is mm-hmm. in time, right. where the God of the Bible is outside of time. Yeah. And if this to say that God is outside of time doesn't mean that he's not engaged with us now, um, but it's just that you can't even talk about it because, like, well, how long did was God doing whatever God did before he created. Well, it's like long. What's long mean? Long is a time word. It's, you just, it, it's just very difficult to think about um, because I think it humbles us as well. It reminds us that God is the creator. We're the creature. And, you know, that should cause us to stand in awe of him. It should cause us to fear him and to have a holy reverence of him. Um, question two, did God take the Garden of Eden off the earth or did he simply hide it? That'd be cool, I guess, if somebody found the Garden of Eden today. But there, gosh, there's a lot of places called the Garden of Eden. There's even in um in Isaiah. There certainly is, yeah. No, it'd be called Garden of Eden. In Isaiah, it talks about a place called Eden as well, but. Is that just like named after the thing? So we know the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of it, why were they kicked out of it? What was in there that they weren't allowed to touch? No. <laughs> the what? There is the tree of eternal life, right? The tree of, well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is what they ate from, and that's what plunged 
mankind and to sin in the whole world and to the penalty of sin. But there's also the tree of life there, right? And so they're prevented from eating that, eating of that tree. And so God forced them out and they put a cherub, an angel, a mighty angel, a divine being with a flaming sword to guard it. So apparently, you know, I don't know how Eden works, but it's, you know, we're supposed to get temple imagery. So there's an entrance uh, that you could sneak in on the other side. I don't know, but God would providentially keep them from getting back in, into it anyways. But he did that. And we're told, yeah, that. And we're told, um, you know, we're even told a location of where it was, right? There's five um, rivers that are mentioned, like, and the Tigris is one of is one of them, right? So we even could, if we were to look at a map today and say, if they're you know, the same things, we kind of get a general idea of where it might have been. But what I guess the the thing that makes most sense is during the flood, it was just totally wiped out at that point, yeah. Because we don't read anything after about it. After they get kicked out of the garden, there's an angel to guard it, prevent them going in, and then mankind exists for a couple thousand years, and they increase in wickedness until Noah, the story of Noah and the flood. And so there's just no mention of it after that. Huh? I wonder if anyone ever tried to get it. If anyone ever did, we don't know about it. Probably dead. Probably. Yeah. Be the next course in the Extra questions. Never mind. Those are two good questions ruined by uh, extra questions. What is. Now this is kind of related to something we've already said. What is 2 Timothy 3.16 talking about when it says all scripture is inspired? So. When, it's, when the Bible says that Scripture is inspired by God, it means it's literally the word theonosos. Theonosos, it's breathed out by God. It's from God. It's God directed the human authors as to what they should say. And so when it says all Scripture, well, what does that mean? It means primarily the Old Testament, primarily that, but not just that. And, and you got to wonder, too, like, does that mean the Septuagint, right? Because that's what they had in in like Paul's day, when he's writing Timothy, they have Septuagint. Septuagint is the, is the Greek translation of the Jewish, of the Old Testament, of the um, 36 books, of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Septuagint means the 70. And so, because there were 70 um, guys that came together to do the translational effort, I guess. The guy that gave up his tune for Jesus was a member of the Septuagint, right? I'm not sure about that. He was a member of Sanhedrin. 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 Right, right. Sanhedrin. Um, the Septuagint, you know, I'm not sure when the Septuagint was translated. Probably older than, than that guy was, even though. So, so when Paul's writing that to Timothy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write that, is he meaning the Septuagint? Or is he meaning probably the original manuscripts of the prophetic things that the prophets gave? Um, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, all that, Moses. Probably the original. Uh, manuscripts, just like today, we say that you know this English Standard Version of Bible Bars isn't inspired. It's the original manuscripts that were inspired, but this is a you know a faithful translation. I think the Septuagint is probably like that, a faithful translation of the Old Testament. But then also in the New Testament, you have Peter calling Paul's letters scripture as well too. And so we would also understand now, and like because of what Ephesians two says that the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the church. Well, the apostles' writings and other prophets are also in the New Testament as well, too. So the New Testament writings would also be scripture. Although at the time of Timothy receiving that letter, that probably wasn't 
realized. That's a, that's a maybe a good offshoot topic. Doctrine. Kind of like science in a way. It's not, you're not proving something. It's what you realize. When we think of the canonization of the Bible, like it was it, we want to get rid of the idea that, oh, it was all these powerful Christian elites who got around and they debated and said, let's use this one. Let's get rid of this one. We're going to take this one. We're going to add this. We're going to get rid of it. That's not how it happened. The canonization of the Bible, in other words, the, the process by which the six, we got these 66 books which make up the Bible, it was discovered over time of people using them, of, of people noticing um, things that were consistent and, uh, and inconsistent. And when there was inconsistencies and things were um, not lining up or they didn't quote the Old Testament, then they were discarded and left out. So so the New Testament is also scriptures as well, too. Well, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit was completely in that. Guiding. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, because it did happen. I, I think it was Council of Nicaea, the first one. Do a couple more of these, okay? Maybe we'll save them. Is it okay to have non-Christian friends? I hope so. Yeah, uh, the Bible never says. Yeah, right. If, if you have no non-Christian friends, um, then you you don't have any opportunity to tell anybody about the hope that is in you. Uh, just be careful with that. Uh, you just understand that you're in, that people who are non-Christian friends, we're gonna have different desires than you. And so that might put you in some awkward situations. I can just give you an example. When I, I didn't, I wasn't a Christian until I was 23. And, um, none of my friends, although some of my friends went to church, they said they were Christians, uh, they weren't actually Christian. Um, when I became a Christian, it was hard to hang out, hang around them all the time. I would see them some, and then gradually over time, it just became less and less and less because all they wanted to do were things that, I couldn't do with a good conscience. I could the things that if I was to do that with them, I know I would be sinning, and I, you know, I didn't want to go against God like that. So, I, I still be there's still some of my friends. We just don't, you know, I still talk to some of them today even, um, but we just don't hang out like we used to, and you know that's part of counting the cost of what it means to be a Christian. You guys, it's you're you're gonna have friends that aren't Christians, and if they compel you to do something that you know. Um, is not pleasing to God, well, who, who are you going to choose, God or your friend? You know, you're going to have to deal with that decision at some point in your life. But uh, good to have non-Christian friends. One more? I don't know. Is this one of yours? No. Tightly folded? Okay. This one? Well, yeah, just... Why is it, oh, man, why is it that in Revelation 19.16 it says that Jesus' name is on his thigh? Can I, Revelation, does it say Revelation? I'll throw this, I will throw this question away because there is no Revelation 19.16. No, it says Revelation. No, No, Revelation is correct. So yeah, okay, pet peeves for Paul. Pet peeves, this is a bonus right now. So yeah, it's revelation. You don't say revelations. It's a revelation and then whatever chapter and verse, not revelations. Revelations chapter 12. And then and then when when you talk about the Psalms, well, you talk about the book of the Psalms, but if you want to quote like Psalm 119:11, you do not do Psalms 119:11. It's Psalm 119. Hebrew chapter 11 so we can learn about the 
If, there, if only there was a faithful deacon in here to remove this troublemaker. <laughs> but there's that. Okay, 1916. And I, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, private, uh, funny story here that um, I won't give you the name. I know a guy who has a Lord, a Lord of Lords tattooed on his thigh in um, in Greek. So it's kind of weird, right? King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and thighs. Like I don't know what what sort of thing you're trying to say there. You, you know this person, yes, but you you won't. I think it's weird. I think it's weird because it's something that Jesus, huh? No, no, no. I'm just saying that I think it's weird. So it does. Are we to really think that Jesus has a tattoo on his inner thigh? <laughs> you got it. First try. <laughs> wow. No, um, I, he does it. So it's it's symbolic of I think power, the growth of his kingdom. You know, I was about to say, like, you know, I'm not 100 sure on this one. I I can't speak I dogmatically. No, it's just written on. Well, what would what would be the point of a sash? That was a law within the old covenant. Um, it's not. That doesn't mean that it's totally unapplicable to us today. It still is good advice in that regard. But on his robe and on his thigh. So you would think it's on his thigh. It means actually on his thigh, not on. Cause, on his actual yeah, that's why I think at least. This is on his robe because it's on his robe and on his thigh. So, but it's the rider on the white horse. Um, you know, your thigh is strong. It's a strong muscle. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, I don't. I don't know exactly. Like yeah. Good question, though. Good question. Oh, that's 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 It means one, and it means it, it, so. Like in the, there's those passages in the genealogies where like Abraham begot Isaac. Um, yeah, it depends upon the context. Of you, like. <laughs> Scandal. Yeah, yeah. I think context needs to drive the the meaning of the words. Like then, well, you got to John three sixteen, right? The one and um, his only begotten Son. So it's unique um, in that regard. All right. Well, good job, guys. Those are good questions. We've got a lot left, so we can pick us up. Not next week. We'll get back to judges, but maybe in a couple. Um, we'll let uh, what's his name get back. Jonathan, get back too before we do it again. Let's pray, and then we'll transition to the next part of our night. Gracious and holy God, thank you for this time to discuss your word. Uh, we thank you for the surety of it, and we pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding. Um, help us to, to not just treat your word as if it's any other kind of book. Help us to really see the value in knowing it as it reveals who you are, Lord. Um, 
Let us have a, a good doctrine of Scripture and help us, Lord, to just always be thinking about how our lives should be conformed to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.